You're listening to TIP. I'd say the best way to describe it is we take a private equity type approach to the public equity market. So we do deep due diligence with the expectation that we're going to own these companies for five to 10. You know, the best time horizons Buffett said is indefinite. And if we can own a great business with a great management team and own them for the next 20 years and continue to compound at double digits, then we're in a fantastic place. On today's episode, we bring back James Fletcher. James is the founder of Ethos Investment Management. Previously, he was the director and senior portfolio manager of the Emerging Markets Small and Mid-Cap Equity Strategy at APG Asset Management, where he managed a billion-dollar fund. James is also the founder of the global nonprofit Young Investor Society. During the episode, I chat with James about ESG investing, how he uses it to find the best long-term compounders, why emerging markets might outperform the U.S. markets over the coming years, James's investment process, the role of cash in a portfolio, what the Young Investor Society is doing to provide financial literacy education, and much, much more. Now, without further delay, I hope you enjoy this insightful episode with James Fletcher. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Clay Fink, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Clay Fink. And on today's episode, I'm joined by James Fletcher. Welcome to the show, James. Clay, thanks so much. It's an honor to be back on the Millennial Investing Podcast. Robert had you on the show all the way back on episode 29. And I really appreciate you taking the time to come back onto the show. Now, you've recently launched Ethos Investment Management. So first off, congratulations on getting that fund kicked off. What led you to starting your own firm when you were already managing a billion-dollar portfolio at another company? Was successfully running a $1 billion emerging markets fund for APG Asset Management, which is the largest pension fund manager from the Netherlands. For me, it's always been the dream since I was young to hang my own shingle and to emulate some of my idols and build a legacy in investment management and have a hopefully a 40-year long-term track record that we can be proud of and build a legacy. So then your question is always when to launch and what time and what conditions to launch it right. And right now, we're at a unique turning point where ESG and sustainable investing and quality investing are on the demands of global allocators. So just a couple of facts. So Deloitte did a study that they estimate by 2025 that ESG and sustainability-linked assets will be half of global asset allocation, so over $50 trillion in assets. And every allocator in the world is saying, okay, I know I need sort of my clients are asking for more sustainable, more ESG-integrated products, but will I have to sacrifice returns? And we have a process that you know, we've developed over really my 17-year career of doing deep analysis on companies, integrating quality and ESG into the process 
And then second, engaging with companies to help them improve their ESG scores and their ESG metrics and their company cultures. And we've generated alpha and outperformance for it. So, so I mean, in a short, I mean, I had two groups that came to me and said, you know, James, have you thought about launching with all of the demand that we're hearing for a strategy like yours? And that kind of led me to feel that now is the right time. We're going to launch in, um, in first quarter of 2022, Ethos Investment Management. We'll launch, we have over $100 million of committed investors, some amazing anchor investors and a lot of demand in, in a product like mine. And then for me personally, it's building that legacy that great returns in the market can be generated through investing in good businesses. So good management teams of products that do good for society and really proving that this can be done in emerging markets just like it can work in, in U.S. and developed markets. And then one of my personal goals, and we were building this at APG and we were building this at some of my previous funds, is that when you look in the shareholder list and you see that Ethos Investment Management is a shareholder of the company, that that means something, that that's sort of brand of quality, that, that this is a best-in-class business of treatment of employees, treatment of shareholders, treatment of, of their products doing good for society. So I really want to create a legacy that creates that brand around great businesses doing good for society. Very cool. You mentioned the ESG and sustainability side, and we're going to dig into that a bit later in our conversation. I'm curious, is your firm investing differently than the fund you are managing at APG? And if so, how? It'll be very similar to APG. So the portfolio that I ran at APG was small mid-cap companies in emerging markets. Um, and this is very similar to how I invested at Kane Anderson Rudnick and how I invested at Westwood Global Investments. We take a concentrated portfolio approach to investing where it's our highest quality 30 to 40 stocks within the investment universe. And we take a long-term approach to investing. So five years plus investment horizon, many of the companies in the portfolio I've owned for over 10 years. And we're really taking a business owner's approach where we're not speculating based on a one-year cycle. We're, taking, we're owning businesses for the long run, just like some of my great mentors of Buffett and Peter Lynch and, and some of the great investors you know, really take that business owner's approach. The, the opportunity set is very similar to how the portfolio, how I've invested in the past, which is we're bullish about emerging markets. We think there's long-term structural growth in countries that are developing. We see a lot of innovation and access to capital in emerging markets. I mean, just, just so you have an idea, there have been more unicorns created in China over the past 10 years than have been created in the US. The brand value of the top 100 brands in the world the highest growth has been from China rather than the US. So we see a lot of really positive trends of rising innovation, a rising middle class. We focus on sectors of consumer, healthcare, internet, and IT, what we define as structural growth sectors. And the number of companies in emerging markets over the past 10 years in these sectors of structural growth sectors is up more than 4x, 500 million market cap companies and above. 
and that's much different than developed markets where the average number of listings on, you know, NASDAQ and US indices are in decline. So less companies are going public. So in emerging markets, you're seeing a lot of new companies go public, a lot of companies emerging as sort of large enough to be investable. And then to your question of how it may be different than we've invested in the past, I think the portfolio and the philosophy is very, very similar. The main difference today is that is the alignment. So now I have a company that I own. It's independently owned by me and the employees. So there's a lot of alignment that clients like and sort of boutique asset managers. I'm investing more than half of my personal net worth in the fund alongside clients. So I'd say that's the main difference from in the past is that now there's that solid alignment with my assets invested alongside clients and independently owned. So we're hungry, we're excited, we're aligned. Yeah, we're excited about the opportunity set in emerging markets, uh, especially small cap feels very inefficient in the market set today. And you're getting some great businesses at, at discounts to what they would trade in developed markets. Seeing that skin in the game and those incentives aligned are something that's very good to see as an investor. Now, on the ESG side, could you briefly explain what ESG investing is and why it's important to you? ESG, for the listeners that are not aware, ESG stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance. Sometimes it's referred to as sustainability investing or folk. And impact as well is a term that's thrown around a lot. So part of the problem in ESG investing is that there's lots of different definitions of ESG. Most investors would say certainly that they have an eye to governance, that they spend a lot of time on, on the governance of the business. And, and a lot of these factors are already integrated into the process. I think what we're seeing, though, in the past couple of years is a rising awareness for social factors, a rising awareness for company cultures, a rising awareness for carbon footprint and environmental sustainability and society impact of the long-term business model. And when you think about it from a fundamental investor perspective, you know, our goal is to maximize returns and lower risks over the long run. And what ESG integration done properly into the investment process is another tool in the toolkit to analyze risk, analyze long-term sustainability of the business. And we find it to be incredibly helpful. We also find that sort of the face value ESG ratings of a lot of the ESG ratings are really lacking in the amount of detail, the amount of understanding that they go into. So we think it takes a concentrated, fundamental, robust analysis of the business rather than sort of checking the box, whether they have a couple policies or what the carbon footprint is, and then giving, giving a rating. I mean, just, just so you're aware, Tesla's ESG ratings vary widely by who's rating them. Some may rate them as an A because it's electric vehicles. Other may rate them an F because governance is bad and they use you know, lithium for mining. And so ESG ratings vary dramatically. I think what we're saying is to do it properly, you need a robust analysis, understanding of the business. I mean, it takes us two to three months of due diligence before investing in the stock. So 
it's deep due diligence, background checks, management understanding, interviewing employees, interviewing competitors, and that type of work to really understand the ESG and the quality and the industry structure of a business can't be done by sort of checking a couple boxes of whether they have policies. And so to give you an example, maybe it's helpful for your listeners. So one of the companies we invested in is a Russian company called headhunter.com. Headhunter is the largest job portal in Russia. One of the ways that we go about finding businesses is we find business models that we like that are proven business models in developed markets and other markets around emerging markets. And basically, we fish where the fish are. We fish where the quality businesses, the proven businesses that have been shown to demonstrate high returns on capital, long-term compounding potential. And we've honed that down to about 40 to 50 business models that are proven to be very high quality, high barriers to entry, long-term compounders. So, so one of those business models is online job portals. It tends to be a network effect business. The more users that are on the platform, the more employers are on the platform, the more that network effect builds. And it tends to be winner take most economics. And so headhunter.com is the market leader in Russia. So they have 55% market share, three times more monthly visitors than the number two and number three combined, two times more CV database, in a market where online recruitment is underpenetrated and is growing substantially. So online recruitment is currently only 29% of total online recruitment budget compared to other even emerging markets at 40-50%. And then, you know, when we were doing research on Headhunter, one of the things that stood out is they were massively undercharging their customers. So their average posting was $385 compared to China averages, which are $1,100, India at $1,500, and at European and US standards at three dollars to $4,000 a job posting. So they were giving companies 10,000 job postings a year and only charging them $250,000, meaning that they were massively under-monetizing their business. And, you know, when we went in and sort of did our digging and due diligence, so Russia, to your question, Russia is a country where you need to be very aware of state links, of regulatory risks, of sanction risks, of the management team. And so here, the ESG scorecard, the management analysis plays a big role. So in headhunter.com's case, Management team was phenomenal. So Mikhail Zhukov um, is the CEO. We spoke to him many times and we also spoke to industry peers. So we spoke to leading job portal in the US, in Australia, in India. They all knew Mikhail. They all knew headhunter.com. They were on some global trade groups. And they basically said headhunter.com is one of the most forward-thinking, best management job portals that we know of in the world. They had been through multiple shareholders and the management team had stayed through all the different buyout groups within the business, checked out really well on channel checks, on had no red flags based on their history. Gregory, their CFO, is just such a straight shooter and really impressed with Dimitri, their head of strategy, 
All of this plays into that ESG analysis. So what we found is a business that had pricing power, had low regulatory risk, was on the right side of society trends, where it's in Russia's best interest to reduce the friction of hiring, reduce the cost of hiring, so that more people can be employed within companies. So you're on the right side of societal trends. And then, you know, we found a business that was trading at very attractive valuations and free cash flow and structural growth. So that, that sort of gives you an idea. ESG is another tool in the toolkit to find these great long-term compounding businesses. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, about a year and a half ago, my wife and I got married and one of the most stressful parts of our relationship has been trying to join our finances together. We all know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce, but Monarch, the top rated personal finance app, has built in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Together, you can see all your finances, collaborate on your budget and get insights on your cash flow and recurring transactions. It's the easiest way to manage your household finances. Unlike other personal finance apps that we tried, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product, and they release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. Most importantly, they never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, My wife and I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners on this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash MI. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash MI for your extended 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash MI for an extended 30-day free trial. Do you guys ever feel overwhelmed with all that's going on in the markets and feel like you just can't keep up with the day-to-day news headlines? Today's show sponsor, Yahoo Finance, is my go-to solution to keeping up with today's top news and stay informed with what is happening globally. With Yahoo Finance, I'm able to see the biggest trends and biggest movers in the stock market, what is happening with interest rates, major geopolitical events, and much more. If it wasn't for Yahoo Finance, I would have no idea that Tesla is laying off 10% of their staff or why iPhone shipments are down 9% year over year. Yahoo Finance also has a number of other cool features, including a tool that lets you link in all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Yahoo Finance is one of my favorite tools I use in my investing toolkit, and it's what I use each morning to kick off my day and stay in the loop with what's happening in the markets. Join more than 90 million monthly users today and get comprehensive financial news and analysis at yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. 
A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. All right, back to the show. Prioritizing companies that meet your ESG standards will likely limit the list of companies that are investable. So does integrating ESG and sustainability into your strategy and investment process, does that enhance or hinder your long-term returns? You're exactly right. And, and one of the challenges as any investor is how do you limit down the opportunity set, whether you're investing in the US or China? I mean, we have 10,000 companies in our opportunity set of small mid-cap businesses in emerging markets. To your question, we find one of the best ways to reduce the opportunity set is to focus on business models that are in our circle of competence, that are proven to be structural long-term winners, and that are best-in-class ESG and management teams. That gives us a starting point to where we're fishing where the fish are. Chances of finding a quality company that can be a five-bagger or a 10-bagger and drive substantial outperformance in the long run are few and far between. These are exceptional businesses. And so, you know, what we want to do is limit that opportunity set. And we find that to your point, ESG management and, and for us, ESG also becomes a proxy of company culture, company innovation, employee alignment. These are some of the factors that will indicate high probability of finding these exceptional businesses that can be long-term compounders and also reduce your tail risk in the long run, reduce your, your risk. So part of investing is also avoiding shooting yourself in the foot and avoiding mistakes. And if you're able to concentrate your efforts on higher probability winners, we find this has been a proven formula for success. Now let's talk about emerging markets specifically. Investors looking to diversify their holdings could look to invest outside of the US potentially, and that may be just in international funds or emerging markets. And when looking at historical data, the US is relatively expensive when comparing to, say, an an international fund. So today's market may be presenting an opportunity to get a better value when looking at these international funds or emerging markets. And before we dive into the specifics, the phrase emerging markets might not mean much to the novice investor. What are emerging markets exactly? And what countries are typically included for those invested in emerging markets? Great question. So, you know, emerging markets as defined by MSCI is basically all the countries other than developed US and Canada, developed Europe and Japan and Australia. The largest countries are the BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, Korea, Taiwan, Southeast Asia. That next set of countries that are developing, we find great long-term opportunities in these businesses. I think there's there's risks, there's political risks, there's regulatory risks, there's country cycles. We've been through some turbulence in China this year. We've 
went through some turbulence in India last year. We're going through turbulence in Brazil. There's always, there's always turbulence, but over the long run, we see powerful long-term structural growth within these countries, rising middle classes, rising healthcare penetration, rising IT penetration. And then on the other side, emerging markets is, I wouldn't say easier, but in some ways more predictable because they're five to 10 years behind developed market trends. And so one of the things we love is seeing the great businesses that are great businesses in developed markets and then knowing that EM is maybe five to 10 years behind and, and, and riding those tailwinds within you know, those great business models, whether it be e-commerce or internet platforms or healthcare, medical devices or diagnostic services or specialty chemicals. But riding those proven business models in emerging markets, knowing that, you know, we can follow the playbook in developed markets. In big picture terms, you're right. You're, you know, many of your listeners, especially the millennial listeners, may be underexposed to emerging markets. There is something called home country bias that we all have. And we all tend to invest in our home country. Uh, Japanese investors tend to invest most of their assets in Japan, similar to European investors and similar to US investors. But just so you have the numbers, 85% of the world's population comes from emerging markets. So, you know, India, China, Indonesia, it's over 50% of the world's GDP now. So it's 55% of the world's GDP comes from emerging markets. And yet, only 5% of global asset allocation on average is in emerging markets. And over the long run, history has shown that these numbers tend to converge, that GDP per capita tends to rise, and that global asset allocation will tend to follow those trends. And so we think access to some of the best companies in India, China, Brazil, Russia are great long-term secular growth companies that we think has long-term tailwinds. And the other thing I, I mentioned before, I mean, just to put a couple more numbers too, but Brazil IPOs have, have increased 4x over the past five years. India has had substantial IPOs, China, Southeast Asia. You've seen some great new economy businesses. And not to say that we have to invest in all the IPOs, but it's, it's a function of emerging markets are having access to capital, access to innovation, and access to new economy business models. So there's a lot, there's a lot to be excited about right now in emerging markets, despite political risks, regulatory risks. I think you know, market sees Alibaba getting hit and other sort of large Chinese companies getting hit, and you're worried about it. And we're very conscious of, you know, regulatory risks. But this is nothing new for emerging markets. I've been doing it for 17 years. And, and you always see these cycles. But long term, I think you're going to want to be in these great sort of structural growth markets for the next 10 to 20 years. Are there any emerging markets in particular you've put a lot of focus on with the launch of Ethos? We're generally diversified across emerging markets. So we have, you know, solid exposure in China, India, Brazil. The largest country weight currently is actually Taiwan. I find access to great China exposure through Taiwan listed businesses 
Taiwan tends to have better governance, uh, higher dividend payout ratios, more independently owned, and trading at better valuations. So I own businesses that make 70-80% of their profits from China are really sort of China businesses, but I get it through better governance and better valuations in Taiwan. You know, we're mindful of cycles of markets. So currently, I'm adding more exposure in China. Um, It's been sold off and there's been some great businesses that have been thrown out with the bathwater, as they say. And India, for example, is a country we like a lot, but valuations have risen quite a lot this year. And so we're trimming some of our exposure in India, being mindful of the outperformance that we've seen there. But generally diversified across emerging markets. And just going back, you know, you mentioned discounts and valuation levels in emerging markets. The S&P 500 is trading at, as you know, as your listeners know, about 25 times price to earnings multiple. Emerging markets are trading at 14 times price to earnings multiple right now. So it's over a 40% discount of what you're able to get similar businesses in emerging markets versus developed markets. So when we're buying software or internet or healthcare or great consumer businesses, we can get a 40% discount to some of these long-term compounders. So I'm pretty excited to be launching a fund right now where I think we're at a nice tailwind ahead for the next five years. You know, thinking about the US market, valuations are very high. There's a shortage of great companies and just an immense amount of capital chasing those companies. You're seeing like Snowflake yeah. IPO at a hundred billion valuation and just valuations that we haven't seen at these levels, you know, say since the tech dot com bubble. So I'm curious, what has prevented some of this money from flowing to the emerging markets, do you think? I think we've seen, I mean, to be fair, some of the money flow to emerging markets. So there's certainly a good percentage of companies that are trading at high multiples, especially we saw it in China last year. Some of the A-share traded stocks were trading at very high multiples, which have subsequently sold off quite a bit. India, you see that. Brazil, you've had your share of companies that were trading at high multiples. But for the most part, we're able to get significant valuations. And I think part of it is the numbers we said before is that global assets are still relatively very underexposed in emerging markets relative to developed markets. Flows tend to follow returns. And so especially when VC funds in the US and US tech companies are posting great returns, flows tend to follow those returns. But we would just remember that things operate in cycles and the best, highest future returns are usually when valuations are indicating strong value. But I would say there's a good number of companies that are undiscovered as well. So I think last time we spoke, I mentioned a company, Nice Information Services, that we had invested in Korea. So they are the Experian or the TransUnion of Korea. So dominant market share, 75% market share within consumer credit ratings. That, As we know, that's a high barrier to entry business, very high return on invested capital growing double digits, long-term structural growth. And what we found was an exceptional management team and family running that business. But we bought Nice Info at 13 times price to earnings multiple. 
compared to global peers trading at 30 times PE. Even today, it's trading at a forward multiple of 18 times price to earnings. So you're still getting it, I would argue, a very high quality business um, at a low multiple. And the reason is it's just less known by institutional investors, less covered by the broker community. On average, small mid cap has two analysts covering our universe, which is a study that we did compared to five times for emerging market large cap and compared to 10 analysts on average covering US large cap. And so you're just competing in a space that's much less competitive, much less watched over, and I would argue as a result, much more inefficient. Now, you mentioned China and how some of those companies have been beaten down. Are there any noteworthy things developing in China that have caught your attention? Or could you expand on some of the headwinds some of these companies are facing? China, and this is, will not be new to sort of the headlines that we've seen in your listeners. We've had debt crisis within the property market of China this year, headlined by Evergrande, but there's a lot of tier two companies that are struggling with debt levels. Regulatory risk has been hit in a number of sectors, education sector as an example, live stream video as an example. We've been fortunate to avoid a lot of that exposure. Part of it is our ESG scorecards and our analysis process where If we see regulatory risk or if we see limits to pricing power or within our research process, if we see that they've had regulatory risks in the past or an impact to society or competing with SOEs over the next medium term, we don't invest. So we believe the universe is large enough that we don't have to take sort of those regulatory risks. We like businesses that have strong pricing power within their core business and low regulatory or societal risks. China, the big theme this year is common prosperity. And so, you know, I think in some ways, China is more predictable than developed markets. In other ways, it's less predictable. But in other ways, it's more predictable. You know, who will be the president of the US? What party will be in power 10 years from now? I don't know. I have no idea. 10 years from now in China, I know it will be President Xi, and I know he will be focused on common prosperity, on the sectors that he has indicated are the long-term structural sectors. And at least that gives you long-term visibility as an investor. You need a company that's aligned with government priorities. You need a company that is not competing with state efforts. And that's why, for example, we stayed away from the education after-school tutoring sector. But in other ways, you have this large market economy with long-term structural growth with actually a lot of visibility on the sectors that will be supported, the priorities of the government, and who will be in power 10 years from now. How will U.S. tech firms be regulated 10 years from now? That's a tough one to call. And as long-term investors, you have to make that call. In some ways, it's more visible from a China perspective than from a U.S. perspective. Now, your expectation is that emerging markets should perform well over the coming years, at least for the long run. How has emerging market returns compared to the U.S. in recent years, say the past 10, 20 years, whether that be just emerging markets in general or the APG fund that you worked with? I'm glad you asked 10 to 20 years rather than 
three to five years because because the reality is EM has underperformed over the past three to five years relative to developed markets, especially U.S. tech and U.S. growth. But I would say, you know, things operate in cycles. So to your point, over the past 20 years, I was just looking at this yesterday, over the past 20 years, end of November to 2001, Emerging markets has, has delivered, I believe, 9.7% annualized U.S. dollar returns, and U.S. has delivered 9.2% annualized U.S. dollar returns, and world index has delivered about 9%. So over 15, 20 years, they've all delivered about that same sort of you know, 9 to 10% annualized U.S. dollar returns. What we are coming up on is a cycle where developed markets have outperformed you know, substantially over the past three to five years. And partly for good reason, like developed markets have delivered strong earnings growth and you've seen strong tech cycle, which has delivered earnings and fundamental growth. And so we wouldn't argue with that. But EM has also delivered earnings growth over the past 10 years. And some of the lack of returns has come from derating, like we said, so that valuation gap opening up to be sort of that 40% discount. And so that would indicate that as long as emerging markets continue to deliver structural earnings growth, which we find a lot of businesses that can deliver solid double digit earnings growth, then we should be in a good place relative to emerging markets. So yeah, I guess, you know, I'd caution the listeners not to look at sort of a three-year performance number to step back and look big picture and understand that asset classes and markets go in cycles. And over the cycle, actually, EM has delivered nearly identical to US in US dollar terms. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than City, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. 
Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither Public Investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet. But I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. I'd like to talk more about your investment process. What are the key areas of focus in your process that have proven to add value and has led to the strong track record of your performance? We've touched on some of this before. I'd say the best way to describe it is we take a private equity type approach to the public equity market. So we do deep due diligence with the expectation that we're going to own these companies for five to 10. You know, the best time horizons Buffett said is indefinite. And if we can own a great business with a great management team and own them for the next 20 years and continue to compound at double digits, then we're in a fantastic place. It's a deep due diligence before we invest and constantly reevaluating the investment thesis as we invest. I would say, you know, one of the things that we do is that we follow business models. Like we've said, we define our circle of competence. We define proven business models that Morningstar would describe as wide moat businesses that can generate from high returns on capital. We do this because it's more predictable to say that these high quality market leaders, wide moat businesses will be still successfully compounding and generating high returns on capital five years, 10 years from now, than trying to call a cycle within a cyclical business, which we may not have visibility five years out or 10 years out. So for example, online job portals, we talked about headhunter.com, Internet portals and winner-take-all businesses, whether it be automotive portals or job portals or real estate portals like Rightmove in UK, these have proven to be exceptionally high-quality businesses. And so we go find these businesses in emerging markets and hopefully find them at an early enough stage that we can get in early. So um, you know, we invested in headhunter.com because we knew that business model. We also currently invest in the largest uh, job portal in Korea. We invest in the largest job portal in Taiwan. We invest in the largest job portal in India and a job portal in China as well. And so it really is finding, discovering, becoming experts in not even a sector, but a specific business model that's proven to be successful over the long run. And then finding that market leader within emerging markets. Uh, We've done similar things on 
credit bureaus and, and done similar things on specialty chemicals where we're finding these exceptional top five decile businesses and then owning them throughout emerging markets. Yeah, that's very similar to Buffett's investment approach, except just applied to emerging markets. One question that's been on my mind as of late is how much cash one should have in their portfolio. On one hand, the opportunity cost of holding cash seems to be very high since we've been in this long bull market and we've seen higher inflation recently. But on the other hand, the overall market is, like we've discussed, for the US, very expensive. So I could also understand the argument for holding a decent amount of cash so my question to you is, how do you think about cash in your portfolio and maybe share your typical cash allocation in your portfolio? There's sort of two buckets here is how you invest on the personal side and how you invest on the professional side. So for me on the professional side, my clients expect me to be fully allocated. So they expect my best 40 stocks in emerging markets. And that's why they're investing in me. They're not investing me to speculate over the short term, whether I think we're going to have a sell-off in the next six months and hold more cash. And so professionally, we're fully allocated. And incidentally, I'm terrible at predicting market cycles. And you can see great businesses over the long run and great long-term trends. But if you ask me what the stock market will do in six months or 12 months, I'm terrible at predicting that. So it would be a useless exercise to sort of hold cash and try and generate extra returns from holding cash. We do, to be fair, there are periods of time where we'll have 3 5% of the portfolio in cash. And that's more frictional cost of we just sold a large position and now we're allocating it to another position. And, you know, and, and there, there's an argument to have some cash so you're ready with dry powder when a market opportunity arises, but it won't be more than 5-10% cash in our portfolio because our clients expect us to be fully allocated. From a personal standpoint, like to your listeners, young millennials, you know, there may be more argument for holding cash, um, especially if you know, there's, there's expenses in the future and, and purchasing a house or purchasing a car, or even you're wanting to sort of have more dry powder for if the market sells off or more sort of financial stability. So I think that is, you know, a personal decision of how much cash you'll have to sort of manage those assets. But professionally, we're fully allocated. And that's proven to be a great strategy. There's been times where I've thought the market looks expensive. Maybe I would have, you know, been biased to hold more cash. And those have been the next two years where we've seen sort of massive bull markets and, you know, thank heavens I wasn't in cash. And so I think just focus on great businesses is a successful approach to investing. Switching gears, you're also the founder of Young Investor Society, which offers investment and financial literacy education to teens, which just tells me so much about your character that I respect so much. Could you tell our audience a little bit about the Young Investor Society and how you're partnering with schools to teach financial literacy? I appreciate the compliment, Clay. I selfishly just gained so much from being part of the organization. 
and meeting the next generation of investors and speaking to teenagers. I think it just gives me personally so much energy and fulfillment. I, as we were talking before this show, we both read Buffett when we were young. It had an impact on, you know, our lives. And what we find is that when we teach fundamental long-term investing principles to junior high or high school kids, it gives them a vision of one, a potential career in investment management. But I'd say more than that, how to think long-term, how to think about businesses you get to understand accounting, you get to understand economics, you get to understand history and psychology, because so much of investing is, is really psychology. And so, and, and then in the end, we're all investors, we all will have 401ks, we'll all have to manage our portfolios. It's, it's such a skill that I think we are still shocked that it is not mandated to be taught in schools in high schools. Um, Personal finance is such a critical skill that most Americans fail at. Two-thirds of high school kids fail a basic financial literacy test, and we think this is atrocious. And even the stock market game, which is how most kids learn about investing in stocks. I don't know if you did the stock market game in high school. I, I did. Um, but it, 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 it's great to expose kids to the market, but basically you're saying, try and outperform the market over a three-month period of time. And it teaches kids to take as much risk as you possibly can. And that's investing is basically ramping up your beta and trying to outperform over a three-month period of time. That's not investing. Investing is owning great businesses over the long run. Investing is managing your finances in a structured, in a robust process. And so we've been blown away actually by Young Investor Society, the impact that we've been able to have in kids' lives and how fast it's grown. So before COVID, we were at 450 schools. And now we're in 1,200 schools in 24 countries, 47 states. We've just seen so many teenagers thirsting for that knowledge. And so many kids are doing Robin Hood and reading Reddit and investing in GameStop and Young Investor Society is able to kind of come in and say, take our modules, take our classes, learn how to properly analyze a company over the long run. And um, hey, if you like it, then, then prepare for a career in investment banking or asset management. So it's been, it's been amazing. It's been just a really fun journey. Yeah, it's something I wish I definitely had at that age. I didn't get into investing till after high school and you know, I started learning about it. And I'm like, why is no one talking about this stuff? It's like taboo subject. Now you talked a little bit about how you help guide these younger people into a career of investment management. So what advice do you give to these students to try and pursue that type of career path? We have one of our most popular lessons at Young Investors Society called the seven golden rules of investing. And these teach some lessons like think long-term, do your own homework, continue to learn, always be learning, don't follow the herd. These are some sort of basic lessons in investing. I think the, the fun thing about investing is that you can read books and you can invest on your own. So it is an apprenticeship like most crafts, but it's unusual that the masters like Warren Buffett and Peter Lynch and Joel Greenblatt have written down their manuals of success. And you can go read their books. You can read how they invested. You can 
analyze their track record. And then very easily, you can open an account and start investing on your own and start testing those principles. So it's an unusual craft that anyone can read a book and pick it up on their own and then start to gain experience. So, so I tell teenagers and college students, start reading and start investing, start buying stocks and read from the greats and find out whether you lean towards value investing or growth investing or, you know, how often you want to trade and, and figure out yourself through that investing lens. The second piece of advice I give to, you know, those looking to get into the career is in the end, it's all about people. So I've been incredibly fortunate and blessed in my career and great mentors because I've worked on great teams. Investment management is an amazing industry that you can basically put a couple of people in an office that have knowledge and experience and the right temperament, and they can create millions and even billions of dollars in value through just a handful of people. So then the question is, can you align with those right people? Can you learn from them? So it's all about people. I mean, it's, I was fortunate enough to join teams and join people that were incredible mentors to me. And some of the choicest relationships I have are, are those people that I've met along the way and shared ideas with and learned from. I mean, that also applies to investing in companies like the best long-term compounders are made up by great people, by great management teams and people you trust and people that are innovative and can execute and are ethical. And I invest in people first and then business models and then sort of prices and numbers third. Um, but it's really, I'm investing in people. The second point would be, it's all about people. I think as a young college student, high school student, someone starting out in the industry, don't underestimate the value in reaching out, building that network. Um, and there's many professionals like me and like many like me in the industry that love teaching, that love mentoring, that love talking to the next generation. So don't be afraid to reach out and build that network, build those connections. I guess I would personally say to your investors, I've been blessed by amazing mentors in my career. And I try my best to pay that forward. So, uh, you know, feel free to reach out. I'm active on LinkedIn. Feel free to reach out on advice, stocks, any help that I can do. But, um, you know, I have been blessed by great mentors and I strive to be a great mentor myself. And through Young Investor Society, I think we're making a difference in many young lives as well. That is fantastic. And I agree that there's just so much information out there around investing would be just podcasting, YouTube, Twitter, and just credible books and people like Warren Buffett, yes. their wisdom. You know, you can, you can go to Amazon and buy some of the best investing books out there for 15 or $20. And it's just learning those fundamental principles that'll last a lifetime. And, you know, it's just so invaluable. James, thank you so much for coming back on to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I really appreciate it and really enjoyed this episode with you. Before we close things out, where can the audience get yeah. to connect with you and learn more about your fund? I mean, first off, Clay, it's always an honor to be with you and the TIP and the Millennial Investing community. Something I'm passionate about and I enjoyed the time. As I said, I'm active on LinkedIn. So feel free to connect and reach out on LinkedIn. 
Ethos Investment Management is launching in January. So you can see the website, ethosinvest.com. We're aligning some great client base. I also hope to do video casts and, and updates and thought pieces that you'll find on, on the website as well. I really think demystifying investing, especially in emerging markets where China and India may, may seem mystified. I think we can all do our part as investors to demystify emerging markets and these great sort of opportunities that we see. So we'll be active there as well. Awesome. We'll link all of those in the show notes. Thanks a lot, James. Thanks so much, Clay. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please go ahead and follow us on your favorite podcast app so you can get these episodes delivered automatically. And if you haven't already done so, be sure to check out our website, theinvestorspodcast.com. There you'll find all of our episodes, some educational resources we have, as well as some tools you can use as an investor. And with that, we'll see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin. And every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.